spend time meditating upon you and looking into your word and discovering the truth that sets us free, Lord. Thank you for how your word builds us up in our faith, Help, helps us to know you and grow in you, helps us to thrive and be strong in the power of your might. Lord, I pray tonight that you administer to us through your word. I pray that your word would not return void or empty. I pray as we go verse by verse, Lord, each of these verses would be sweet to our soul and accomplish all their purposes, reaching the innermost part of our being, Lord. And we thank you that we can gather together like this. I pray that you continue to build up the body of Christ, Lord, that we'd be a light on a hill, shining brightly for you, pointing to you, drawing people to you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Can you say hello to a couple of people, please? Everybody have a seat. All right. If you have your Bibles this evening, please take them out and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. If you need a Bible, uh, there should be Bibles underneath the seats. And so as we uh, get to the end of our journey, at least in 1 Corinthians, uh, we've been going at it here for several weeks, and we've come to the point in the book where the Apostle Paul is giving his last thoughts. It's almost like as we get into this chapter, it's sort of like getting onto the ground floor of seeing how the operation of the ministry was working, getting some insight into the uh, Apostle Paul and the things that were on his heart. A lot of times we don't realize, for example, a service like this, uh, there's a lot that happens that we don't all see. And a lot of discussions and a lot of prayer, a lot of meetings and things like that, the, sort of the operation to allow things like this to happen. And so as we get into this last chapter, and it's going to be short tonight, that doesn't mean we're going to end early, it just means there's not as many verses, we may end early, but don't, just because we have less verses doesn't necessarily mean that. Uh, these, this is probably uh, the least amount of verses that we'll go through on a Wednesday evening. But uh, very impactful, very insightful. And this chapter is, could be one of those in our personal devotion, our personal reading, where it'd be easy just to kind of say, yeah, 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 okay, let me get to 2 Corinthians. But if we take a moment and just kind of look and understand that things are going on is sort of the nuts and bolts of the ministry of the Apostle, of the Apostle Paul. And uh, we saw that ministry as we went verse by verse through the book of Acts. And we saw how this apostle named Paul was born again on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And he had an encounter with God. I find it interesting that when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, that he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? That was his first response to the understanding of 
who he was talking to, who he was encountering, the risen Christ. And I think that's uh, appropriate because we see the Apostle Paul, he really meant that. He was really changed to the extent to where he was living for the purposes of God, the risen Christ, the living hope. And so as you go through the book of Acts, you, you just, especially from that point on, you see, you see the ministry of Paul. He's all over the place. He's traveling you know, throughout the area of Asia Minor, which is Turkey as we know it today. And he gets up into Europe, finally, and Macedonia and, and um, Rome. We see uh, him also around the area of Jerusalem and we see the persecution that was nonstop, but we also see that behind the persecution was the man that would not be stopped. And that was because he was living for the purposes of God and the plan of God for his life. And so the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, is simply a letter to one of those churches that the Apostle Paul established as he's traveling around on his missionary journeys. This area of Corinth is, um, you can go there today, and it's in Greece, the southern uh, area of Greece. And the Apostle Paul was there for 18 months and established a church by preaching the gospel. And as he preached the gospel, people got saved, and then he spent time discipling them in the Word, teaching them the Word, helping them to grow in the Word. As Apostle Paul moved on, uh, later he got word that the church was not doing well. The church got carnal or worldly. They got fleshly. They were doing their own thing. And so this letter is kind of a tough letter. A lot of correction in this letter, a lot of explanation of some things that they didn't have clarity about. And the Apostle Paul would say in this letter that I couldn't even speak to you as spiritual people, which is not sad that, that they, the time that they had with the Apostle Paul and the training and the fact that they were indwelt with the Holy Spirit and that they were so worldly and fleshly that he couldn't even talk to them as spiritual people. And that, that word carnal just means fleshly. We see that in this book. And so as he's correcting the issues, as he's dealing with things, he's hoping that this church in Corinth, that the people there would heed what he said so that when he traveled back there, which was his desire, that it wouldn't be a tough meeting. It wouldn't be a confrontational meeting. That isn't fun, is it? Confrontation. Maybe some of you like that, enjoy that, but uh, it's not fun, you know, and he didn't want to have to do that, but he would, but he didn't want to, and he was hoping that they would listen to him, and as they received this letter, it's the same letter that we're reading, is a letter that he sent to this church, hoping to straighten them out so that they'd be a healthy church, and so as we've been going through this letter, we have been instructed of what a healthy church looks like and the necessity to heed God's word and to live by faith and to trust in the Lord, let the Holy Spirit lead and guide and deal with doctrinal issues when necessary, deal with sin issues when necessary. And so we get to this last chapter 
chapter 16 in the book of 1 Corinthians, and it's just sort of Paul's sort of closing words to the church at Corinth. And notice what he deals with first. He says, now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So very instructive. A lot of details just in those first four verses. And mind you, there were no verses when he wrote this letter. But what is he doing? Now he's telling the church at Corinth as he's closing this letter and and indicating that he's going to be coming back. And he's telling them that there is... A collection. He says now concerning the collection. So this would be something that they knew about. This collection was spoken of uh, much by the Apostle Paul. If you're taking notes, you'll find this collection spoken of in Acts 24, 17, Romans 15, 26, 2 Corinthians 8, 13, 2 Corinthians 9, 9 through 12, Galatians 2, 9 through 10. And so this was a well-known collection that the churches around the area of Galatia, this was an area that Paul went to in Asia Minor, a.k.a. Turkey. If you remember those missionary uh, journeys that he took through there, Um, churches may, some churches may ring a bell, Lyconium, um, Derby, Um, places like that, Um, as he was going through these areas, these were Gentile areas or non-Jew areas. And it's interesting, you observe what's happening here. He says the, the collection for the saints. So he's making a singular category for all the believers in all of the churches, why is that significant? Because initially, there was a big division between Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers. Huge, huge division. Huge struggle trying to bring these two types of people together so that they would understand, look, there's neither Jew nor Greek nor male, nor female, nor slave, nor free. In other words, the body of Christ is one. The body of Christ is united. The body of Christ is made up of people, regardless of ethnicity, of geographical location, of background, of social economic status. It's made up of people who are born again. Throughout the world, this is what we call the universal church. 
So the universal church is everybody in the world who is truly born again, truly saved, truly a Christian. Those are all synonymous terms. Those who truly have their sins forgiven, who have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's the only category. You're either a saint or you're an ain't. You're either born again or you're not. You're either Christian or you're not. So the Bible is very clear. We talked about that on Sunday. But the point is, there was a collection that was being taken up by the non-Jewish people for the Jewish people in the first church that was established in Jerusalem. Now, we're not really sure why they were in such dire straits financially. A couple possibilities is that we know that there was a, a great famine in the land. Agabus, the prophet in Acts chapter 11, prophesied that there would be a famine. It could be that there was a famine that affected them, particularly because of the density and the need for food in that area of Jerusalem. Uh, it could have been because of the persecution um, in many places in the world now. If you're a Christian and you're not in a, a place where Christian, Christianity is tolerated or accepted, you'll have a hard time getting a job, a hard time going to school, a hard time being accepted in society. It could have been that. There was a lot of persecution in the area of Jerusalem in that first church. But whatever the reason is, the people in Jerusalem that were particularly saved Jews, they were in dire straits. They needed help. And this is what the church does. The church sees the opportunities that are given to that particular local church as a way to help the overall church. And Paul's understanding of how the world would be changed, which it did. In, in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was turned upside down simply because of the spread of Christianity. And so he saw the need for the church to be strong wherever it was. He saw that the strength of the church would determine the strength of the family. The strength of the church would determine the strength of a community, of a society, of a nation. And so he wanted to put all his resources in building the church of Christ, to build that. And so he was going around to those churches and saying, you guys are doing pretty well, and there's a church in Jerusalem. We need them to do well there. And so can you give a little? And the collection that I get, I'll, I'll take it back there to strengthen them. But what would that do? What would that do to the church in Jerusalem? It would encourage them. It would show them that there are those provisions that maybe they didn't even know about that God was going to provide. God was going to use the Gentiles to provide for the Jews. That would help foster unity to the Jews who didn't like or accept the Gentiles in many cases. But what would it do for those that are giving? And that's really the issue. The bigger issue is how God provides 
for the church, and he does it through people that give. That's how the church is strengthened, and that's how the church is able to do the things that God has called the church to do. It's through individuals who are born again, who see their resources as given by God, and those resources are theirs to be a steward over what God has given them. And those resources, when used for God's kingdom, they build up God's kingdom. But not only that, you know what it does? It builds up the giver. Isn't that interesting? Giving is one way that God grows us as individuals. Why? Well, the Bible says where our treasure is, is where our what will be? Very good. Our, our, our treasure, where our treasure is, is where our heart will be. So when we give, we are demonstrating what we feel is valuable. When we give to the kingdom of God, we're recognizing the value of God working through the church. Does God need our money? Do I need to beg or anybody at our church beg for money? No. God doesn't need our money. That's ridiculous. We need to be responsible for how we use our money. That's the issue. So money is neither here nor there, but it is a way that we demonstrate and show where our affection is and where our love is. And so what he tells these churches around Galatia, he's saying, hey, put aside something. And that would be a test of their heart, right? The Bible says that we can't love mammon. That means money and material things and God at the same time. In other words, how we use our finances and our resources is sort of a test of our relationship with God. And so you may be thinking, well, is this one of those money pitches? It's not. If you go to church here, you know we don't pass around an offering. We don't make pleas for money. And there's a reason that we don't do that. It's because the Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. So what is New Testament giving? There's a, our understanding a lot of times is in reference to the tithe. The tithe was an Old Testament, really it was a tax. And it was a way that the Jews actually had uh, over 30% of a tithe because it would be broken down in the different things that they would give to. But I think that could be a good sort of frame of reference for, for giving. You start at 10%. You don't want to be legalistic about that because our giving is a free love offering. It's not mandatory, it's not required, it's not a law, it's not demanded, but it's a free will offering as a way for an individual to exercise their faith. For an individual to say, Lord, I trust you. 
So that's what God has allowed in the way of building up the church is he's allowed the building of the church to be the responsibility of every believer in the church. And the effect on the believer is they grow because it shows that they're not dependent on their finances and worshiping their finances, but they're trusting in the Lord. And it's not just one person, but it's spread across the whole congregation. And when the congregation freely gives out of their heart, there's a joy when they give. So because of that scripture that says God loves a cheerful giver, we should never give out of compulsion if we're forced or pressured. Then that's not giving the way the Bible says to give. We're not to give in a way where we're begrudging the giving. In other words, we're taking the money out or now we sort of go online or whatever, but we're shaking and we're mad about it and we're upset about it. And you know what? The Bible says you're, you're free not to give. If you can't give and just be so thankful and say, Lord, you are so amazing, take it. If you can't do that, then don't give. But the Bible says that giving is a reflection of our faith, of our dependence on God. And so a, a good practice is just to start praying that God would give you more faith to give, more trust to give, and hopefully you see that percentage of your giving go up because that's the percentage of your faith in a way to think about it. But all that's to say that the church doesn't need anybody's money and God will provide for the church and he always has and always will. But when a church is a cheerful giving church, there is joy, there is edification, there is strengthening, there is dependence on the Lord, there is uh, faith building, kingdom building, and the church is strong. So it's more important for the church to be strong in faith than it is to be strong in finances, but the two kind of go hand in hand. But not always. I've been at churches that have people that have maybe some of the most faith I've ever seen in my life. And yet, many of those members in that church have, don't have two nickels to rub together. You and I support churches in Haiti and Uganda, and we have been, like these scriptures, we have been a source of being able to contribute to a ministry that is reaching hundreds and thousands of people. But they, they wouldn't have been able to do that had not we, from our resources as a church, been able to help them and support them. And so this is one of those uh, not fun things to talk about. And I probably err on the side of not talking. I don't like talking about finances. 
But I do think it's necessary. And if we're going to go verse by verse through the Bible, we got to talk about it. But also, if we're going to be complete Christians, these are things that we have to understand. So this is what was going on. The resources that those churches had, especially in the areas of Galatia, that Paul was collecting and saying, hey, let's, let's take your resources, set them aside, and when I come, we'll collect them and I'll take them to Jerusalem. Another thing that he points out as he's talking about this, look in verse 2. He says to do that on the first day of the week, let each one lay something aside. So that tells us, that's one of the scriptures that we know the early church, they met on Sunday. Sunday was the first day of the week. So does the church meet on the Sabbath? What, what is the Sabbath? The Sabbath day is the day before that. And so is it required or necessary for the church to meet on, on the Sabbath? Is, is that something that we should be doing? Are we meeting on the wrong day? Well, the Bible tells us that it's really not about the day that we meet. It's most important about who we meet with, and that's the Lord. And in our faith in God and our trust in God, every day is a day that we worship the Lord. But we do see in Scripture, here's one of the most convincing Scriptures, that the early church, they did meet on Sunday. What was Sunday? Sunday was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So that's a good day to meet. But I do think it's important that we understand that our faith should not be such where it's just a faith on a certain day. So Sunday is our faith day. We go to church, we check the box, we worship God, and then we go on our merry way. This is exactly not what Jesus talked about. He talked about worshiping him in spirit and in truth. He talked about our whole life being a life of worship. And that means whatever we're doing and wherever we are, we're honoring the Lord. So whatever you did today, whether you're at work, you're at home, you're at school or whatever, that was your place of worship. And maybe you don't worship like we do here. This is a, a gift that God has given us to be able to assemble together and meet in this way to worship the Lord. That, that is an amazing gift that the Bible says encourages us and builds us up and helps us in the regular things of life. But yet, as we go from here, the, our worship doesn't stop. We worship God wherever we are and whatever we're doing, because as Jesus said, we don't worship at a certain place or in a certain building. We worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, when you become a worshiper, wherever you are, that becomes amazing. Because you could be getting yelled at by your boss and worshiping the Lord at the same time. And your boss will be maybe more upset because you're taking the yelling with the smile on your face because you're worshiping the Lord. 
And so as believers now, we, we worship God in spirit and in truth. And we have this great opportunity to be worshipers, not on a certain day. We have to be careful about Sunday is my, my church day. The rest is my day or my work day or whatever. No, it's all an opportunity to worship the Lord. So the, the, the other thing is Paul is saying, hey, pick for yourself some people at Corinth that you would like to go bring this money. So take a collection. When I come, pick a couple people. So there is a check and balance system there. So there is an accountability there. So I thought, I thought that was interesting. So in verse 5, as we move on, it says, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you that you may send me out on my journey wherever I go. Sounds a little fluid to me. Does it to you? Sounds like I, I want to do this, but we'll see. Doesn't sound like he was super locked in to a rigid schedule, although he did have some ideas and some plans of what he wanted to do. So watch what he says. In verse 7, he says, For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. Do you see how Paul operated? He would be praying, seeking the Lord, and have desires. But at the end of the day, he would say, if the Lord permits. So when we're flexible, we won't get bent out of shape. It's important, and I have found that being flexible or the best I can has contributed to perseverance and continuing on with the Lord. I've had a lot of plans. I've had a lot of ideas and visions. Almost none of those actually happened the way I thought they would. Some did. And some happened, but it looked a lot different than I thought. And so this is very insightful for how a believer is to plan their life. If the Lord permits. I'd like to do this. God may be calling me. I feel God calling me to do this. But at the end of the day, if God is calling us to do something, He will actually make the way for that to happen. So we have to be sensitive to open doors and closed doors. If God permits. I want to do this. If God permits. And so the ministry of Paul was a ministry under the power of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, he, he, this is interesting. He actually recognized that he might be wrong in wanting to do certain things. He recognized that I want to go here, but God may not want me to. 
And so because of that, he was open to things. He wanted to go to Rome so bad. He eventually got there, but he got there as a prisoner. Um, that was not his plan. But he got there. And not, not only did he got, get there, he got there and got to be in front of the most powerful person in Rome to share the gospel. So in regards to our planning and our schedules, I want to read a couple scriptures. In Proverbs 16.1, the preparations of the heart belong to man. So what does that mean? That means we do prepare. And it, it is important to prepare. But then it says, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. So preparation is good. But we have to be able in our preparation to be flexible and not just check boxes and not be so rigid and understand that the Lord may be leading and directing and also understand that there are sometimes we're going to be wrong about something. And that could be shocking to people. I thought I heard the Lord correctly. I thought I understood the way you know for sure as you're surrendered to the Lord is the open doors that he gives you. If it doesn't come to pass or a closed door is there, then maybe the Lord wants to do something else and maybe you just were, were wrong. I've been wrong about a lot of things and some things I felt in my heart and thought in my head and I just waited and let them play out. Some of them never played out. Some of them did, and some of them did, but just in different ways. And so even the Apostle Paul, that you would think that he would have this direct line of communication, that everything God said would go directly in his heart and his mind, and he'd be almost like a robot and not have any miscommunications, misunderstandings, involvement of his own will and his own plan, and yet... He recognized that, and so he said, if God permit, I want to do this. I think it may be on my heart to do this, and the way I'll know for sure is if God permits me to do that. Another scripture is in Proverbs 16.3. Commit your works to the Lord, and your thoughts will be established. Now, isn't that something? So, in this proverb, it's saying... That if we say, Lord, I'm, I'm committing my plans, I'm committing my efforts, I'm surrendering my will, I just want your will. Basically, we're, we're putting ourselves in a position where God's in control of our life and we're surrendering our own control. And it says, when we commit that and we say, Lord, what I do... I'm committing to you. It actually says that he'll get us to think rightly about what he wants us to do. In Philippians, it says that God will work in us and through us to his good pleasure. So that tells us two things. It tells us that it's possible because of our mindset and the way we are as human beings and fallen in the flesh that 
we're not really committing our works to the Lord, it's possible to say, Lord, I want you to work a certain thing out a certain way, and will you bless it? Instead of, Lord, I don't care how you work it out as long as it's your will. When we do that, we're on the road to thinking right. That's what uh, another uh, scripture in Philippians 2 says, have the mind of Christ. Having the mind of Christ starts with saying, Lord, do your will and your plan in my life. And we will start to think correctly. But if we're unsurrendered, we're forcing our will, we're forcing our agenda, we're forcing our plan, and then we want God to sprinkle a blessing on it, we're going to have a tendency to make a lot of bad decisions. Another scripture, Proverbs 16, 9. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. It's one of the things I've learned from Pastor Brian in Haiti. When you're with him, he has a, in Haiti, he has a very vague plan. Very general. But he does have something he's thinking about. And you can literally, when you're talking to him, you can see the wheels turning in his mind. He's praying to the Lord about what to do constantly. Where to go, when to go, how to go. And sometimes when you're in Haiti, you'll be sitting around for a long time. You're like, what are we doing? Where's Pastor Brian? And then he'll pop up and say, okay, let's go. Let's do this. And all of a sudden now you're in a voodoo village surrounded by voodoo people that want to kill you. But then you have this divine protection and I've learned a lot from Pastor Brian of, of really listening to the Lord and really seeking the Lord and, and understanding that, that He wants to direct our steps and we have to be sensitive to the leading of the Lord. And the last one I'll give you is in James 4.15. It says, instead of saying I'm going to do something tomorrow or the next day or the next day, we should say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. So that's a good thing to, to think about. If the Lord wills, well, next year I'm going to fly to Egypt to carry Bibles into that land there. Well, say if the Lord wills and pray about that. But that, that's just an example of, of how God is working and has worked in the life of the Apostle Paul, but it's an example of what he wants to do in our life as well. I think the key, key issue that we have to ask ourselves is who's leading who? Is the Lord really leading us or are we wanting to lead him and just ask him to come along with us? All throughout the Bible, you have these descriptions of God leading, God being in control. Things like we're bond servants. So as a bond servant, the, the master tells the slave what to do. Those are the illustrations of what it's like to be a Christian. So we will save ourselves a lot of problems when we allow the Lord to lead us in that way. So let's move on. In verse 8 it says, but I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. Ephesus is where he is now writing this letter. He says, the reason that I'm staying here 
and I'm not going to do certain things is because in verse 9 he says, for a great and effective door has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Does that seem strange to you? Do those seem like they go together? If you read the Bible, that seems normal. But if you're not familiar with the Bible, that may seem abnormal. An open door, but adversaries? God giving opportunities. This is what this is. This is opportunities. Now, note something very important. Is because of what we just discussed about Paul being surrendered to God's will, he understood then that his life was to be lived for God's purposes. And because his life was to be lived for God's purposes, he recognized an open door. This open door was for the gospel. And that's how he considered opportunities. He saw opportunities as an opportunity for the gospel. He saw going somewhere as an opportunity to share Christ with people. And that's not just for the Apostle Paul. That's for every believer. That instead of thinking there, this would be a good place to move because of such and such reason, Paul would say to us, is this a good place for the gospel? Is this a good place for Jesus to be known to these people? And I remember when I was, uh, the Lord was putting on my heart to start a church somewhere, and I was in California, and my pastor came to me and he said, hey, why don't you start a church in Ladera Ranch? That's where I lived. And I thought, first of all, Ladera Ranch is close to the beach, so that's good. And then I thought, the weather's good, and I wouldn't have to move. It would be more convenient. But then I thought, there's like 20 amazing verse-by-verse Calvary Chapel churches within 20 miles. Why would I do that? And I, I said, I want to go to a place where they don't have something like this, where they don't, they don't have access to verse-by-verse verse Bible teaching inspired by the Holy Spirit and this Calvary Chapel model that you may have seen in the Jesus Revolution, but where people don't have access to that. I want to go somewhere like that. And then the Lord led me to Texas. But see, that was just when we're open and we understand that where we go and what we're doing, our jobs that we take or don't take, it's not just about our, the furtherance of our own selves. It's about the furtherance of the gospel. When we see things like that, it's a total different mindset. It changes the way we see things. Paul here in verse 9, he says, I'm going to stay in Ephesus because... There's this great and effective door, or there's, there's this big opening. It's open to me, and what he's saying is that God opened the door. He didn't knock it down. 
I think that's very important too because that's something that often comes up with zealous, ambitious people. You may have heard the phrase like if they don't open the door, then knock it down kind of thing. And that's not the way we're to approach things as believers. We're to follow the Lord's leading and look for the open doors. Look for the opportunities. And those open doors, God opens them, and a door that God opens, what happens? Can anybody shut it? The Bible says that the the doors that God opens, no man can shut. That's where we want to be. So what we're learning here is, if you want to say the secret of Paul, secret may not be the best word because it's loud and clear here, but the, the point is, and it's so obvious to miss, is much of his success was him simply following the plan that God had for his life. And when he was wrong, a door was shut, he would recognize that. He would understand, oh, the Lord must be closing a door, so I don't want to do that. I'm not going to force it down. I'm not going to look at things of this This might be a place where it might be easier or there might be more uh, people like me there or the weather might be better or whatever. He was thinking, God, lead me to the best place for people to get saved. And he knew something so important for us. That those places are often hard, not easy. They're hard, not easy. He said, the open door is there. It's amazing. But there's many adversaries. And so when God opens a door, we have to know that resistance or opposition is not a sign that something's wrong. It's a sign that something's what? Right. It's a sign when there's difficulty and struggle and opposition, especially when we have the mindset of, We're going in the name of the Lord to do the work of the Lord. And then the opposition comes. There should be a bell that rings in our head. This is where I'm supposed to be. But so often when opposition comes, we say, this is not where I'm supposed to be. I need to shut it down because there's opposition. No, that's wrong. Opposition is a sign that God is leading you to a certain place. Difficulty is a sign that God is leading you to a certain place. And when you get in those places, you know what? You are going to have to rely on the Lord and not yourself. You are going to have to have the power of the Holy Spirit and not the power of your flesh. And that's why God often puts us In places like that, because he's teaching us to trust him. He's teaching us about greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, that no weapon formed against us shall prosper, that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church, but only when that church is built on Jesus, trusting in Jesus, empowered by Jesus, then that church cannot be shaken The people in that church cannot be shaken. The mission of that church and the people of that church cannot be shaken. But when a work is done in the flesh, 
then there can be an outward appearance of some, some sort of working. But God really sees the heart. And so if you fast forward to the book of Revelation, you have this picture of seven churches. And out of the seven churches, there are only two that there is no correction given. And those churches were what we would look at as weak, not having a lot of stuff, as barely making it. But in our society, we see a church like those in the book of Revelation as not a real church because there's not as much financial wherewithal or materialistic type of things that appeal to people. And there's nothing wrong with God providing a nice building and nice things in the building. The point is, we're trusting in the Lord to do whatever He wants to do, and we're not making those things happen through fleshly means. So, in verse 10, he goes on and he says, And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear. For he does the work of the Lord as I also do. So remember, Paul's writing this from Ephesus. The plan was to go back to Corinth to bring the money. And he's saying, and you notice in these plans, he's saying, if, he, if Timothy does come, so nothing certain, we're praying about these things and we're seeing. And in those days, they didn't even know if someone would be alive when they made it, if they traveled back because of the persecution and all, and all that. But man, can you imagine Timothy, Paul, a seasoned saint forged through trial and tribulation. His disciple or young protege was Timothy. And this Corinthian church gave the apostle Paul a hard time. And then he's sending Timothy back in there. And I wonder if the apostle Paul did that because he knew Timothy needed that. He needed to go through an experience with the church like this to grow in his own personal faith. But isn't it sad that this church has to be warned, hey, when Timothy comes, he's my guy. We're like-minded. He, he would say, there's no one more like-minded to me than Timothy. And he has to tell the church, be nice to him, basically. He's warning them. He, the, Timothy, when he comes... Don't treat him in a way where he's afraid to come. And that is a very sad indictment on this church. And he's pointing out that, hey, Timothy, he does the work of the Lord like I do. And so this should be a, a message for all of us of how we treat other people who do the work of the Lord. We should honor them and make life easy for them. We should do the best we can not to resist and come against and be hard on them, but people are doing the work of the Lord, which should be all of us. We shouldn't contribute to how hard it already is 
with the adversaries that are set before us spiritually. So that's why in the book of Hebrews it says, don't forsake the meeting of one another together as some are in the habit of doing, even more so as the day approaches. The reason that is stated in the book of Hebrews is because they were, when they were to come together, they were to stir one another up to love and good works. So the encouragement of the gathering of the saints, not the difficulty of coming together, not making things hard on one another. And the reason that they had to be warned is because the Corinthian church was carnal. They were fleshly. And what that means is they're about themselves in their own way. They're even cutting in front of people in the potluck line. So that, you know, then Timothy's coming here. It's like, hey, be nice to him. So in verse 11, it says, therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me, for I am writing for him with the brethren. So just an amazing way to think about our interpersonal interactions with one another in the body of Christ is to be those who encourage, who build up, who love, who support, not the opposite of that, which can happen, as Paul is pointing out. And that's what makes the church, the encouragement, the love, the building up, the edification, that's what makes the body of Christ so special. It's one of the few things that God has given to the believer just to be a, just a blessing to those individuals that are believers in this world. It's hard enough in this world. The church body should be a blessing and encouragement and a safe haven and a sanctuary and a, a place where people are excited to come because they're going to get loved on and blessed and encouraged. But in many cases, when we're carnal, it's just the opposite of that. So in verse 12, he says, Now concerning our brother Apollos. You remember Apollos? He was one of the guys that the church at Corinth was dividing over. There was a group of people in the church at Corinth that said, We're Apollos people. And they were saying that to the exclusion of other people. So there's this sort of sectarianism where they're, they're, they're identifying themselves as Apollos people instead of just, we're just Christians. But we're Christians like this. We're after this guy. And he, he was a great apologist. He was known for his looks, his ability to speak, his intellect. And he's saying, now this Apollos, I strongly urge him to come to you with the brethren... But he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Now, that's interesting. That's one of the, it just seems so personal, doesn't it? That's how you, when you read this, you're really getting the feel of like, you're just reading a letter. You're like a, a fly on the wall to the working of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And, and, Here's, here's what he's saying. I wanted Apollos to go back to you guys, and he didn't want to. That's what he's saying. We don't know why, but 
you know, I wouldn't want to go there either, but he didn't want to go there. But notice something very important. The Apostle Paul did not say, you have to go there, I'm commanding. He basically said, hey, you don't want to go. If that's how the Lord's leading you, fine. He didn't put some heavy authoritative trip on him. In other words, he's trusting Apollos to follow the Lord himself. He didn't see the need for this big hierarchy, power trip. I'm in control. I tell you what to do. If you don't do it, forget about you. He just said, hey, Corinthian people, I I wanted Apollos to go. He didn't want to go, so maybe he'll go another time. But he was also trusting the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit was leading Apollos. So in verse 13, now he really ends this letter with a heavy exhortation. He says, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. So what does that tell us? He would not say that if if it was going to be easy. He said those things to the church at Corinth. And remember, this was a tough letter. And he knew how important it was to speak truth to this church. Because this church was going to become something that it should not have been. It, it, It was on its way to being heretical, to being false. The correction was needed for them to be a right church. And after he says all of that, now he he says these exhortations sort of indicating that the reason they were going the way of the world was because they weren't doing these things. So this is... These are some of the things that the church should be doing. The church should be watching. And the way that is structured in the Greek, for those of you who are interested, is in the present imperative, which means it's a command. And the command is to do continually. Now, we live in a time where many churches feel it's wrong to watch or stand guard or be watchmen on a wall, and instead embrace every worldly thing that may come for the sake of mercy or compassion, when in fact, this letter demonstrates that there is a need for firmness and correction in order to keep the integrity of the church. Now, this is not something that we want to do or it's not something that's fun to do but it's something that's necessary to do we have to keep pushing back the things of the world that's why he says watch be like a watchman stand guard for false doctrine for the traditions of men for the heretical ideas that the world has And it is true, if you watch what's going on in the world, just wait, it'll be in the church not long after that. 
The pastor told me that a long time ago, and I started trying it, and it's true. So when you start seeing what's going on in the world, just a little while later, it's going to filter into the church. We see this all through biblical history. We see this a pattern of the children of Israel, that they allowed false doctrine to enter. They went after the idols of the world. They become idol worshipers. But here's the interesting thing. They did all of that while still maintaining some of their religion of Judaism. So it was a mixture, it was a blending. It wasn't, in most cases, it wasn't just, I'm leaving Judaism for something else. It's, well, I'm doing Judaism and these other things. But this has been the history of the church as well, the evangelical church even. So a big part of the church is to watch. We need watchmen on the wall so the church doesn't become worldly. Then he says to stand fast in the faith. So in other words, let the faith that was delivered to us in the word of God be that in which we stand upon. Don't waver, don't sit on it, don't run away, but stand strong on the faith that was delivered to us the word of, that we have in the word of God. And then he says, be brave. If you have an old King James version, it says, quit you like a man. In other words, that, what he's saying is, be a man. So they had a problem, too, with soft men. Part of, and a big part of what is going on in the church, is the men weren't being men. He literally says, be a man, be a man. What are you guys? What's wrong with you? Be strong, stand up, be a leader. And it's interesting when the church declines, in a lot of those instances, you can see it's because the men stop being men. And the men start getting soft. And you have then the blending of Men and women, where women are stepping into roles that God designed for men. And then when you have that, you have a, a church that, again, is, has fallen. So he says, men, be men. Be strong. Be the leader. Be watchmen. Lead your church. Lead your families. You be the one to go to church. You be the one, even if... Your whole family doesn't go. You be the one to do that. You be strong. You show the way. And then finally he says, be strong. In verse 14 he says, let all that you do be done with love. So isn't that an interesting balance? So you get this sort of like pregame speech for a football game. Watch, stand fast in the faith. Be brave, be strong. But... Let everything you do be done in love. Isn't that an amazing balance? It's an amazing balance. So what does this tell us? It tells us that to be loving is to actually be strong too. To be loving isn't to be tolerant of every false doctrine and cultural moray that comes. That, that's not loving. Being loving is being strong in the Lord and standing in the Lord. I love in Ezekiel 3.11, I believe, where 
Ezekiel is in this really tough culture and society, and it says God gave him a hard forehead. So he can, he can face those who are just strong-headed, but also he had a soft heart, and that's really the balance, that we're strong in the Lord, but then we're also soft in the heart. That's the balance. Verse 15, I urge you, brethren, you know that the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunaeus, and Achaicus. These are the three people that came to Paul in Ephesus from Corinth. He says, For what was lacking on your part they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. This is amazing. So these men, one of them, Stephanus, was one who came to faith because of the ministry of Paul. Paul actually baptized him, which was rare because he didn't baptize a lot of people. But now they're with Paul and they're going to go back. And he's saying, hey, these guys, when they came, they refreshed me. It was a blessing to be around them. They encouraged me. And you know what's really, it's really neat for me because we recently had Pastor Vincent and Melissa and their kids, Ian and Zachariah, or Zachary, out. And we got to spend time, you got to spend time, and they left and they said, we are so blessed. We feel so loved and so refreshed and so encouraged. And, and now I'm reading that. I'm like, praise the Lord. Because you know what they're going to do? They're going to take that and they're going to go back to Uganda where they're in a place where it's 95% Muslim and they're under this incredible opposition. They're going to be taking our love, our encouragement, our refreshment back to that place. But the same with Pastor Brian in Haiti. So let's finish in verse 19. It says, the churches of Asia, remember that's Asia Minor, the area of Turkey, greet you, Aquila and Priscilla, greet you heartily, in the Lord, with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation with my own hand, Paul. So, in other words, now as he's finishing, he's just saying, hey, this is, we're all in this together. Greet this person, greet this person Holy kiss, don't get any weird ideas. Probably one of those deals like my wife's family does where they like kiss you on each cheek and that kind of thing. Usually they don't even touch 
your cheek, which I'm kind of glad about, but just kind of <laughs> do that kind of thing. It just depends on the culture from, but handshake or a godly hug will suffice kind of thing. But the point is, love one another. Be glad to see one another. Be affectionate in a godly way towards one another. Don't be stoic and distant and cold. We have the Lord and we share the Lord with one another. So that's what he's saying. Enjoy each other's company. Say hi. Be blessed. Be filled with another brother and sister in Christ and what God is doing in their life. And Paul's saying this salutation is with my own hands because he didn't write his letters generally. He had somebody write them for him. But at the end, he's saying, now I'm actually writing this. He says, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. And then he says, oh, Lord, come. That word accursed means anathema, devoted to destruction. And, oh, Lord, come means Maranatha. You may have heard that. But that Maranatha is in, uh, in Aramaic. And so that word Maranatha, this is where we get that. Oh, Lord, come. Then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you have ministered and will continue to minister the word to our hearts, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We love you. We praise you. We honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday.